So the theme I'd like to explore this morning is how do we practice in a time of generalized busyness? How do we practice in the middle of December at a time that's uh, for, uh, for most of us is a very busy time? And I, wanted, I want to explore that theme in, in three ways. First, to talk about the qualities of busyness both that can be both personal and in the culture, and, and the qualities also of the, um, sort of the, the, the nature of this time being, being a, a time of growing darkness, moving towards the solstice. And then I want to explore two ways to work with the fact that this is a dark time, darker time, but it's also, it's also this very, very busy time. And there are two, I think, two basic responses to being very busy. One is to be less busy. And the second is to be more spacious and equanimous with the busyness. So I'm going to talk about those two aspects of working with being busy. And it really brings out in some ways uh, a series of themes. One, the first would bring out how do we, in a time of busyness, still stay fresh and still stay grounded in what's most important to ourselves. And the second would be how do we stay spacious when, in, in some sense, space and time are very filled up. So these are two challenges to our practice at this time. And it may not not be that way for everyone. Some of you may just be, this may be the most spacious time. You may not be having a lot to do. And you may have worked out uh, some ways of keeping your center during this busy time. And some of you may be very busy. For how many are you quite busy? And how many are relatively spacious? Oh, Okay, well, maybe I'll give a short talk and then you can <laughs> and then we can have plenty of time for people to share because this is probably this is probably not a typical sample of the American population. <laughs> so maybe it's the fact that you're actually here on a Wednesday morning. So, okay, so we'll 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 see how this is. <laughs> So, so first, it's, it's always been interesting for me and surprising that we are so busy in this culture at this time of year. Because in some ways you could say that we, we, have, a, we have in this culture, well, one way to say it is we have an interesting relationship to the natural world. <laughs> interesting may not be, maybe uh, we could use other words. But it's interesting, as nature becomes most slow, we become most fast. And interestingly, also, it's the other way around. As nature becomes most fast in the summer, that's when we take our vacations and become most slow. Now, we could unpack that and learn some things, and maybe it's obvious, but it's a very, I think we... In, in many ways, we are, um, seem diametrically opposed to the natural world. And, of course, that has a lot of consequences that we uh, desperately need to attend to, actually. You know, so it's, this is, we can be humorous about it, but there's also a serious other side to it, I think, as, as all of us know. And, and so for many of us, it is this very, very uh, busy time. And, in fact, many of our lives are quite busy. And I wanted to read you one of my favorite sort of reminders of this busyness from uh, my friend Diana Winston. And this was from uh, an article she wrote in an issue of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship Journal called Turning Wheel a few years ago. And it was an issue on time. And her contribution to the issue was called Speed. <laughs> and this is what she wrote. This is part of it. She wrote, actually wrote quite an article, but this is a little almost like prose poem. I don't have time to write letters, read books, visit my friend, play with my little brother, kiss, touch, sigh, dance, 
relate, eat ice cream, make music, cook, pray, smell, meditate, take a walk. My God, make it all stop. I don't have time and it's running out and I'm running fast and furiously and I want it to stop. Ouch, it's painful. Why can't it stop? Why you have to make it stop? What's wrong with this country? Have we all gone crazy? Are we insane? How We've lost touch. How Have we lost touch? We've got to stop this ending, running about. I, all I want to do is lie down and just crawl into my bed and rock myself to sleep. Not this craziness, not this ha- crazy running about. What am I? I'm so tired. Please, somebody, you've got to help make me stop. <laughs> I'm sorry if that <laughs> took you <laughs> took you into... <laughs> we'll just have a moment of <laughs> rest. So, but there's something that's, um, that, that is very deep about this busyness. And I think we all have to find ways, both uh, personally and culturally, to relate to the busyness. Um, and some of it is way more than personal. I think, I think we all know this, that there are certain changes that have happened in the society. There, there's a book that was written about 10 years ago by uh, Juliet Shore, who's an economist, and the book is called The Overworked American. Some of you may, may know about this book. She actually documents the fact that, <clears throat> generally speaking, compared to 30 or 40 years ago, each American works about a month more than we used to in the workplace. I think it's quite well known in terms of the number of vacation days that we, the average number of uh, vacation days in this country is 12 and that may be more than some of you have. You know, that it's 12, and compared to Western Europe, the average is five or six weeks. So it's a huge difference, and it has a lot to do with the nature of our culture and the quality of our lives. Our main rivals in terms of overwork are the Japanese. I don't know if this will happen soon, but very recently the Japanese introduced a new word into the vocabulary, the word is karoshi. The translation is death by overwork. So there, there's a lot that's culturally, and it, it may be the fact that uh, what happened, we almost, it's as it were, it's as if we made a choice implicitly 30 or 40 years ago as the labor-saving technology, particularly computers, was starting to have an influence, and it's as it were we had a choice. We could keep the same level of consumption as, let's say, 1960 or 1970 and work less and have more leisure. The other option was to increase the level of consumption, work more, and have less leisure. Which choice did we make? (laughs) And we made the latter choice, but it wasn't really, of course, a choice because it was never discussed. And, and it's helpful to look at that because some of the technology is still helping and hopefully it can be brought to more consciousness. Many of the Europeans seem to have made a different choice. You know, and it's interesting because I know from, from the Juliet Shore book, for example, in Germany they work about three or 400 hours a year less than we do and produce about the same amount. It's interesting. So, there, so in terms of busyness, there are a lot of uh, cultural issues. Thomas Merton, about 45 years ago, around 1960, he wrote this, very, very prescient about the tendencies towards overwork that he saw. He wrote this, There is a pervasive form of contemporary violence to which the idealist most easily succumbs, activism and overwork. To allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many people, to want to help everyone and everything, is to succumb to violence. This frenzy kills the root of inner wisdom, which makes work fruitful." And so it's a, very, it's a very powerful issue. It has cultural, social roots. It has also personal roots in terms of whether we find ourselves overly busy. And it's a deep issue to, to look at. And, of course, this tendency is taking over the world increasingly. And I imagine that Western Europe is even being challenged to cut back on their vacation days. But there's a, there's a story that I heard from uh, Sulak Sivaraksha in Thailand 
uh, a little while ago. He tells the story that in the 1950s, the, there were a number of uh, visiting American uh, development experts, and they were trying to advise the Thai government about how to, be, how, how to have the economy grow. And they told the government that the problem is is that the people are too content. <laughs> and, and so they developed a campaign to have the people become less content so they'd be interested in working more and having the economy grow. It, it's, it's a powerful story. because you, know, you, could, you could say in some ways what happened is that... Uh, we could say that the greatest wealth that we have, in a way, is our inner peace or our inner happiness. And you could say that, in some sense, they robbed people of their greater wealth to create what we might take to be a, a false wealth or a very problematic wealth. So here, that's the situation in, you know, in our culture, in our world, that we have a lot of pressures to work a lot. And, and again, it's not just a personal situation. It's very much a social, structural, cultural issue. So here we are at, uh, at this time, and it may be busy for some of us, and for many of us, have, half the group has already worked out all these issues and, and are, are fairly spacious. But even so, I imagine we all sometimes get busy. So it's helpful to look at the question of busyness for, and to see that there really are two, at least two basic responses. And I want to talk about that first one of seeing that busyness is an issue and, I, and saying, well, I lose sight of my priorities, my deeper values when I get too busy and, and sometimes I need to slow down and, uh, and shift the situation. And then sometimes maybe I don't have a choice and sometimes can I still keep my center even when things are very busy. So those are the two, two areas I want to explore. So the first one is, how do we use this time if we feel so inclined to, to slow down, to be more quiet, to remember the, as it were, the lessons of the natural world at this time? The natural world is, is, is going into further darkness. It's going into a time of, we might say, inner germination, when things that appear still, where nothing is happening, are actually preparing for later growth. And so, for many of us, this can be a time when we say, let me go into that, uh, let me myself go into the darkness, let me go into the appreciation of slowing down and being with the dark as, um, as something that is, um, can be a refuge in a way, that can be something, that darkness can be something that's very fertile, that we can perhaps take some time during these next weeks to be with the natural world more fully, to take some time of slowing down, to take some time of reflection, to in a way go into the dark, to go into the appreciation of the stillness, of the, of the even the mysterious, to... to Remember that as a way of um, mm, slowing down, remembering what's most important. And so I love during this time to uh, have quiet time to be with the to be with the natural world. I think probably in the last um, 25 years, I think I've been on retreat over New Year's probably at least 15 times for a week or 10 days and it makes a huge difference to take this time and you know the the New Year's retreats we do here are booked up way way in advance and so but it but even if it's not a week to take a day or two can be very very powerful and it's really to uh, sort of to let the busyness aside in a way it's really what we do when we sit, when we meditate. In a way, we can, we can relate to the busyness in our lives by taking a day or two away, a week away, but we can also do it on a daily basis just by saying, when I meditate, the busyness ends here. And so, it's, so I think it's, it's very important when we practice just to let go, 
not to some, I know there are strong tendencies sometimes to use our meditation sessions as planning sessions for a busy time. Does anyone ever do that? <laughs> and so maybe to have the discipline to, to think of our, our meditation sessions as a time of going into the dark, as a time for cultivating a kind of uh, letting go of the busyness, of the, of the details, and sort of opening to what's uh, more mysterious. Uh, there's a beautiful quotation in, the, in one of my favorite books by um, Stephen Batchelor called The Faith to Doubt, subtitled Glimpses of Buddhist Uncertainty. <laughs> it's a great title. And he has a, he has a passage where he talks about the value of relating to mystery. And I think this is what we can use this time for. It can say, let me relate to the mystery of darkness, of what's still to come, of what's unworked out in me, what's unfinished. And this is what uh, Stephen Batchelor says. The mysterious lies at the heart of our lives, not at the periphery. Its presence is only felt to the extent that a meditative attitude still lives within us. Unlike a problem, a mystery can never be solved. A mystery can only be penetrated. A problem once solved ceases to be a problem, but the penetration of a mystery does not make it any less mysterious. The more intimate one is with mystery, the greater shines the aura of its secret. So we can use this time as a time to say, how do I go into the darkness, into the mystery? into the fertility of not knowing, of letting go of the details, can really use that uh, intention to guide our time now. And again, we can do it on a, a, a daily basis. We can do it on a weekly basis as when we might take uh, just uh, time for a Sabbath or for some time each week when we just... The, just say, I mean, this has been important for me. I've worked with the practice of a Sabbath, of taking a day, or at least part of a day, once a week, as a time, okay, no emails, no telephones, no newspapers, no busyness. Only busyness that I bring in for my mind, which is sometimes considerable. <laughs> so, but then, you know, when we meditate or when we do the Sabbath, we always bring a special um, container in which we dump our busyness. You know, there's one, you might see it, it's right over here. <laughs> that, that everyone's busyness is being dumped there and we, we, um, we recycle it in an ecologically careful way. <laughs> so, so that's what we do individually. The second, um, the second way of being with the busyness is a little bit different. And it's, it's a very interesting way. It's to say to the busyness, in a way, how can I be with you? You have to be here for whatever reason, or even sometimes you may choose it, but it has to be here. And how can I be with the busyness, as it were, with the same inner spirit of not knowing and of mystery and of openness and of freshness? And it's possible to do, isn't it? It's possible to be with busyness in a very different way where we're not just trying to get all the busyness done so we can really live. Has anyone noticed that tendency in your mind? You know, once I complete my to-do list, then, then I can relax and just do what I always wanted to do. And the problem with that is that uh, sometimes it dumps us, you know, whatever, at age 65 into retirement and we have forgotten what we really wanted to do. There's a phrase that uh, the poet Yeats uses about this tendency in culture that he he speaks of planning for something that never arrives. And so much of our lives are like that. And so how can we bring in that quality of freshness and clarity even even into the periods of busyness? One of the times that I learned a lot about this was when I was um, doing, I had done, I think, about two months of meditation. And I was, I was at the Insight Meditation Society on the, on the East Coast, and I volunteered to um, help with the uh, K-12 
kitchen work for a few days after I had just been in silence for two, two months. And so I joined the team of basically cooking for 120 people. <laughs> and I remember the first meal, it was tacos with you know, endless condiments. And it was a little bit busier than even the so-called ordinary meal. And we were just running around. And I remember that I, I had a certain exhilaration because I could just be completely running around because it was important to, to have the meal arrive on time and so forth. And 120 meditators who've been contemplating watching their own reactivity can get pretty upset pretty quickly. <laughs> Interesting. About, the, about food. <laughs> so, so anyway, that, that aside, whatever that says. Uh, so we, we, were, we felt under some pressure, and yet it was possible to really stay in the moment with a very busy situation and still say, how can I be present and, and be with that situation? And I've noticed that at other points in my life that it's really possible to have that... Uh, have certain qualities of stillness, of non-reactivity, and still be moving very, very fast. To me, this is really points to the quality of equanimity, which is a core quality that's developed by our practice. And the interesting thing about equanimity is that equanimity really means the quality of balance and evenness and sort of unshakability in our experience. And it doesn't have to do with the speed at which we're moving. And that's a very, very important point because we may be around meditation centers or go to retreats and we think, yeah, if everyone just lived so they were walking really slowly and really considerate and all this, then, you know, and if I'm not like that, then I shouldn't expect to be mindful. And I know I, for many years after practicing, I, I had that confusion. I thought, well, you know, uh, I just have to live a certain way and do certain things and then I'll, then it'll really work. But... That was, that was off in some ways because the, the teaching really is that the speed doesn't matter and the outward form in a way doesn't matter at all. It's the question is, can I be balanced with what's happening? Even if it's incredibly fast. Can I be balanced with um, things coming up that are, are hard? Can I be non-reactive even when things are happening at a very fast rate? And that's that's a significant part of our practice. And this is something that if we find ourselves in the next weeks in situations where things are happening in a very speedy way, can we have that kind of inner freedom? It's like the, what, the stillness in the midst of the hurricane, right? It's like the, the uh, quiet at the center of the storm. It's really something that can be, can be uh, developed. There is a, a very interesting Zen story about this quality, uh, about uh, tendencies to get attached to things being slow, and how the, the deeper teaching points towards the quality of um, the speed not mattering. So this is the Zen story. It's from the, uh, a collection of Zen koans called the Book of Serenity. A Zen teacher was sweeping the grounds of the temple. He was approached by another teacher who said to him, Too busy. In other words, he thought the teacher thought that this person was moving too fast or something, too busy. The teacher who was sweeping responded, you should know that there is one who is not busy. This is the elliptical Zen way of, <laughs> of engaging in dialogue. Uh, you should know that there is one who is not busy. So what does that mean? That, that maybe he's saying, I'm not busy on the inside, you might say. It looks outwardly busy, but there is one who is not busy. At which point the other person responded by saying, if so, then there's a second moon. <laughs> if so, then there's a second moon. At which point the original teacher held up his broom and said, which moon is this? <laughs> That's the end of the story. <laughs> So, um, so this this may be the the reason that you're not studying Zen. <laughs> uh, but it's a, it's a beautiful story because it's it's really making the same point that we've been exploring before that that it's not the the speed that matters it's rather the lack of reactivity or the inner 
the inner quality that can be very wise, mindful, compassionate, even if things are moving very quickly. In fact, it's important that there be people who can be with maybe difficult, challenging, fast-moving situations and still have that inner center. And so I think that's part of what we cultivate. And of course, that first way of cultivating by slowing down can help us to practice to have the second capacity. So it's not like an either-or. They're related, aren't they? You know, and, and when, we, uh, when we can be present with the fast movement and still have that inner center, in a way it helps us because we don't get so attached to the slow form, to the slow, to the slowing down. So maybe in closing, it's helpful to, um, when we are in a fast-moving situation, we can use that as an opportunity for practice. We can ask ourselves, what makes this difficult? Am I here in this situation saying, this is too fast? Or, if only this were slower, then I, could, then I would like it. Or if only this was slower, then I could really be mindful. And as it is, it's too fast, so I'm totally giving myself up to all my bad habits. <laughs> you know? And so we can, look at, uh, we can look at those situations and be attentive. To what extent is there a story or an interpretation that's, that's moving me towards, um, in some way, reacting or rejecting the situation? It's, it's not an okay situation. And to what extent can I, um, can I open to the situation and be, be present with it. Um, to what extent, when I'm, uh, when I'm busy, particularly do I, do I have a line that says, I don't have enough time? Which, which I find, you know, think of the situations when time is crunchy and think of how the sense of not having enough time brings incredible stress. Right? So it's a very important thought to be aware of. I don't have enough time. Of course, it's very useful to plan ahead (laughs) at times and to leave as much time as possible sometimes, but sometimes that can occur. And so we have to look at, within a busy situation, are there ways that I make the situation more tense by my interpretations? Is there a way of opening up to those situations? Can I notice for example, that my body's getting tense, that there's some kind of tension. And so these would be, these would be uh, parts of our experience to be mindful of that can help, you know, we can, oh, my body's getting tension, getting in tension. Oh, let me relax. Okay, time for fast-moving meditation. Okay, I'm ready. <laughs> or something like that. And so, because it's, really, um, it's really a sense of how can we be how can we be with grace and wisdom and as much as possible an open heart in any circumstances? Not just in some. Not just in the easy ones or not just in the good ones or not just in the best ones. But how can we even take the the fast movement, the busyness, maybe even certain aspects of craziness and still have that equanimity, still have that that, uh, quality of presence? There's the... um, there's a famous phrase from uh, the uh, Carlos Castaneda books that some of you may have read where he talked about the wise person being able to see what's happening as controlled folly <laughs> and to sort of relax into that and still have that quality of presence. And so this is really, to me, this, these are two ways to look at our times and I think the response would be very individual. Some of us would say, it's really important to slow down, to have these times to go into the darkness, to be present, to ask questions, to go back to my deeper values, to maybe uh, remember what's most important, to, to do that which helps that in this time. And for others, it might be to say, uh, well, it's, I want to do that, but maybe also I want to be able to bring those deeper values into the busyness, into the fast moving. And it's, it's not either or. Because I think it's really a question of how do we, how do we respond uh, to the challenges of this time of year, and they may be general during, in our lives. How do we respond in a way that uh, increasingly brings us back to center and has uh, every situation as a potential learning situation? I think that's really the spirit of our practice. So, thank you.
please. It's in a book called Conjectures of an Innocent Bystander. Do people know who Thomas Merton was? Uh, yeah, he he's a uh, he was um, a Catholic monk in his most of his adult life. Uh, died in 1968. Um, he he's probably the person in the English-speaking world who most brought the contemplative dimension of religion back into Christianity. He was also a tremendous bridge between East and West. And lastly, he also bridged the the inner life with the, we might say, the um, life of social change and activism. Because he was sitting in his monastery and he regularly received visitors. He wrote on social events, even though he was in this monastery in Kentucky. And very inspiring for me, when I lived in Kentucky, I used to go to the monastery all the time, you know, probably every six weeks or so, and got to know a lot of the monks. I got to know people who had studied with him. Very beautiful man. He, he met the Dalai Lama. He, uh, yeah, he met, he met Thich Nhat Hanh when he, in 1967, and just a very influential person, a person of great uh, wisdom and um, compassion. Very, um, very, very beautiful. So, do you remember your question? Maybe I suppose maybe it ties in. Okay. Uh, if something comes up that, in your experience, and you don't quite know how how it happened, why it happened but you know that there's stuff that you need to deal with. Um, I guess my question is, do I just sit and try to, be, try to be real calm and then have an intention that something that I'm going to work? I mean, I just, I don't know what the mechanics are of, of uh, trying to deal with something that I obviously am confused about mm-hmm. or don't know about, you know, where does the wisdom come from? Mm-hmm. So if I could reframe it, and maybe I don't know, if, did everyone hear? How, and, and let me know if this, this uh, feels accurate, but how, how in the spirit of our practice to respond to a challenging situation or problem or something that feels um, feels difficult. I mean, it could be a life situation, an interpersonal relation, or something in our lives that feels very difficult and we don't really know how to respond in, in, in a wise way. Don't know what's going on. Don't even know what's going on. Or why, why it happens to you. Mm-hmm. Or, what, or why something is happening. Or you, can you give a concrete example? Well, um... Uh, yesterday, <laughs> uh, a friend of mine yeah. um, was upset by a couple of dogs that yeah. another friend of mine had. And the friend with the dogs had been providing this lovely breakfast, and this other friend came in and um, was surprised by the dogs, and she got very upset, and... Mm-hmm. I had the impulse to give her a hug, um, but then as she went on, I just lost it. Mm. <laughs> and uh, I don't do that that often, mm. but I did. Mm-hmm. And I said some things that that I um, didn't plan to say, and I don't know exactly <laughs> what it is in her that evokes this in me, mm-hmm. and I would like to understand it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah. So I think everyone can relate to your to your question. In fact, everyone might have something that might have happened yesterday. <laughs> Quite similar. Uh, uh, so one thing we can do. I, I don't. I, I maybe the first response will be a little bit flip. For one thing we can do is we can come uh, talk about it the next day with like-minded people. 
it's actually not such a flip answer, you know, because it's actually pretty significant. To to it's really saying, let me bring this to people who share my values, and let's let's explore it. Because I think I think the spirit of of inquiry is a good one. That that when something happens that troubles us, or if I say something and say and find, I think we all know this very well that we sometimes lose it and say things that don't match our self-image, right? And that are troubling and say, what, was that me or am I, you know, shouldn't I have better results after 10 years of meditation <laughs> or something like that? And, and so it's, there are so many ways to respond, but I think that the, the starting point of inquiry is a great one. It's really to sit with the situation, maybe to have some reflection and even something that maybe goes more into the nonverbal, because we, when we get into the verbal domain, we sometimes can rehash it, and we just activate our judgments or our, our, our um, more reactive qualities. So I think the, the inquiry or the, the looking into it, if it can be non-reactive, or as much as possible we make use of our non-reactivity, which might be to, me, to sit silently just to say, you know, just to sit there and say, what do I feel about that? You know, and to re- not think it out, but really, you know, and mostly it would be to say, I don't feel so good. You know, I feel sad or I feel, and, you know, and to notice what's there. If there are judgments that occur, to just say, oh, there are judgments happening. You know, there's, there's maybe a wanting to make amends, you know, to apologize or, or whatever it might be. But I think the inquiry, the sitting with it, the looking with it, the talking with friends, is is beautiful. It's a beautiful way to respond generally when there's some um, some confusion. Maybe where we tie it to our practice is that we, over time, start noticing that uh, when we notice these things over time, we can start noticing that they're patterns. And I think I think we go a little more deeply when we start saying, "Oh, well, I did that, and oh, I did something like that." two weeks ago or three months ago. And because I think a lot of the uh, powerful part of our practice is when we start noticing some of our core reactive patterns and can have some, even some precision about seeing what they are. You know, like, oh, when this happens, I tend to get lost. You know, when this, when this occurs, when someone says this or when someone doesn't listen to me or when uh, something happens that I feel really pained about, I tend to lose it, you know, and, and to, to, to be, and to, so I, I think not to take this as a problem, but it's more like an invitation to really see more deeply, see more deeply what are my own patterns and how to, how to respond more wisely to them. So it, it's, I think it, it gets deepened when we start seeing these, not necessarily as just one-time things, but, 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 uh, as um, invitations to look into this and then to have it be an ongoing kind of investigation. Because something really shifts in our practice when we start to be able to identify those patterns which are most, um, say, say, more deeply rooted and which happen regularly. You know, the, sort of our core reactive patterns, our basic ones, and not, not always very flattering to look at those. In fact, not usually, but, but um, and, and for that, um, help and guidance and community and friends can be very helpful because part of what, what's difficult about that situation are the judgments that come up, you know, the, the fact that I can judge myself, and it's very helpful to, to work with the judgments in certain ways too cause, because what tends to happen with difficult situations is not just one reactive pattern, but it tends to trigger other ones, right? One reactive pattern will then trigger my judgmental reactive pattern. And then I'm, as it were, off to the races. <laughs> you know, and I get quite lost. So, um, so community, really important, because we can know that we're not isolated, that basically our reactive patterns probably aren't all that different from others. And so we can know everyone's trying to work with this. You know, I, I've been exploring a lot of this recently by, uh, you know, I did a day long here on working with judgments in May, and We've had a group which has um, continued. We just had a meeting a few days ago. We meet once a month, a follow-up to the day-long. And 
it, it takes that kind of continuity to work with those kind of patterns. Judgments are some of the most, what I mean by that sort of harsh, evaluative judgments of self and or other are very deeply rooted and it takes that, um, that time and that continuity to start seeing those and to know, okay, we're all, everyone's kind of doing this and we're, we all get lost in them, they're hard. So, so that, I have found that, um, that long range view for the deeper one no. and, and then community can be, so that's, that's maybe a starting point and just to, to sit, to look and to, um, yeah, to, to take it as um, something to work with. I hope that's a starting point, at least. Yeah. Would anyone else like to add any reflections to to her question, please? I have a friend that always says, recognizing the void. So if there's a situation between two other people, it doesn't mean you jump in and yeah. try to embrace it and fix it. It's between those two. Often, yeah. Often that can be wise. So it can be, it might be to look into... You know, in that kind of situation you're describing, do I have uh, a self-image of being a fixer? And sometimes, and, and you know, the, the downside of that is that we may actually be uncomfortable with certain kinds of situations to the point where we almost compulsively want to fix it. And the, as it were, the positive side of that is it may, there may be, it may come out of, come out of compassion and wisdom to actually help. So it's not, I think there's no standard <clears throat> behavior that is always the right behavior, but it's more this looking within to see see what's there is, is where our practice can help. Please. Um, can you go maybe touch on a little bit deeper? Let's say you recognize the pattern. Yeah. It's very well established. Yeah. Maybe decades. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Meditate it through. Yeah. Don't react. But sometimes it just seems to hit such a pattern. Yeah. Yeah. Did everyone hear the question? Um, Is there anyone who can relate to her question? It's a great question because it's, um, it can sometimes feel frustrating to have be doing a lot of meditation, think of oneself as someone interested in growth and, you know, maybe have done 10 years of therapy, <laughs> you know, and, you know, a lot of retreats. And then when you're in a certain situation, you know, this happens and instantly reaction, right? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so uh, it can be a little bit uh, frustrating and demoralizing even or, or worse. And so, um, well, the, you know, if I had to say um, in two words a response would be um, stronger medicine. <laughs> and so, uh, but that's actually a few ways to look at it. I, 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 some things just happen by the continuity of working with something. And sometimes we work with something, whether it's uh, personally or interpersonally or, or socially, and we just keep working. And at a certain point, something sh- changes. So I think that we can't always, it's not so helpful to think this should be happening now, this should change now, it's not, there's a problem. That's not always the case. That change is somewhat mysterious. You know, that I know from my own work with my own deep patterns that sometimes I can watch and look, work with something for a thousand times and the shift happens after 1,200 times, you know? So it's, it's I think we have to um, be careful of the tendency to think this should be happening right now. That's another interpretation and we have to be careful for that. And it, it's... it's um, in that same way, it's helpful to, and this ties into the talk, to, to remember the mysterious nature of change, which we don't usually, we like to do in some ways and not in others, <laughs> right? When we want something to be happen right away, 
we don't want to think about the mysterious nature of change at all. <laughs> right? And so it might be, you know, with... Um, um, I was thinking of the execution a few days ago that uh, we can get, ex- you know, extremely upset because this didn't happen right now and that's, you know, that has, is appropriate in certain ways. But these kind of deeper-rooted changes happen sometimes in mysterious ways over a longer time. And it's hard to remember that sometimes. So that's, that's, that's a piece of a response. Sometimes it's, it's important to... Um, this is what I meant by stronger medicine. Sometimes it's important to actually give more energy to working with the pattern. And that might be to uh, work more consciously with a mentor or with a group or with people to give more focus, partly so that we, we can remember to investigate and to uh, be mindful in the moment with the situation. We need a lot of support. You know, the, 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 the basic transformative practice that we use here has to do with um, awareness, sort of a non-judgmental, warm awareness, whether to oneself or to others, over time, is healing. It's healing of uh, quite deeply rooted uh, pain, and, and which, which generates a lot of our reactivity. And yet, we don't know exactly how much, you know, we can't quantify it always. And sometimes we just need more of those moments. That might mean more support. It might mean working with a mentor or teacher. It might be, for me, it sometimes meant doing more retreats, where I can really work with something in a sustained, extremely well-supported way. That's what I meant by stronger medicine. We might need to have a little more energy to work with the situation. Uh, and that could come in a, in a variety of ways. Yeah. Thank you. It's a great question. Um, would anyone like to? We, we need to uh, close just in a minute or two. But would, did anyone? Would anyone like to add anything to to that question? I'm sure there's there's a lot of collective wisdom here. You know. Was that? Did you have something? Okay. Would anyone like to add anything to that reflection? Something that may have helped you to work with a deeply rooted pattern that sometimes felt like it was just staying and staying despite all your best efforts? Please. Yeah. Yeah. The willingness to keep being there. Because it, it, my experience is that um, it's that continued healing presence over and over and over again. And the, our practice really depends on that constant showing up. It's, this is not, you know... I don't know if after saying this, some of you may want to leave, but this is not the quick fix um, approach. (laughs) I like to think of this approach as the transformation by exhaustion method. (laughs) I don't know know if that's quite right. (laughs) I could say it in other ways. (laughs) But but it's, it's uh, it's that constantly showing up, constantly showing up, being present, and in a way being very careful about our notion, oh, I've showed up enough, this should have changed by now. Mm-hmm. Be really careful with that idea. Maybe last, last, last two comments, if you can be brief. Yeah. Observation is that um, when I've been working on a particular yeah. fault, I should yeah. say, or difficulty in my life, um, that when I just think I've dealt with it, yeah. um, it always smacks me back in the face, mm. you know. It's almost like you can't get rid of it until you really deal with it. Yeah. Because it, it'll come back to haunt you. you yeah. Dealt with it. And that can maybe tie to that quality of um, both the themes of how to be with busyness can relate to that. The, the slowing down as it were going deeper. We can, we can sometimes say, let me work with the situation. Let me just, again, go, go more deeply as a, as a practice. And then secondly, the equanimity that can be with the situation no matter what's happening. That's equanimity. Equanimity doesn't, as it were, look for results to only be a certain way before I'm equanimous. That's not equanimity. Equanimity can be there even when things are a little difficult. And that, and that comes from experience. It comes from learning with sometimes difficult experience to, to be able to keep hanging out and to be present. 
So, Jen, maybe last last comment. For me, it's just a, if I found that if I accept, it's like, oh, here I am again. Yeah. It it keeps me from it, from adding to the reactivity, and that gives me a little space to kind mm-hmm. of go easier and, and tone things down a little bit. Yeah. So maybe to to talk to oneself in ways that 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 minimize the reactivity, mm-hmm. to say, here I am again, and. In a way, it's to, um, again, this is really at the center of our practice, it's to take, we take refuge, as it were, in the learning process and not, rather than in having things be a certain way. We take refuge in the broad learning experience of being human and not of, oh, I take refuge in things being really pleasant. (laughs) Even though as we take refuge in things in the learning process, that tends to have a certain pleasant quality after a while, which is maybe, maybe it's not so much pleasure, but a kind of a joy. Can, you know, do, you, do you know the experience of joy even when things are difficult sometimes? That's, that's the larger framing. So let's just sit quietly for a minute or two and we'll, we'll close. Letting be present what was helpful from this morning, something that may have come up in the sitting and not even be directly related to the themes that we've discussed, or it may be one of the themes of the talk or the conversation afterwards, whatever was helpful, or if there's an insight that we want to remember or an intention that comes out of the morning, let that be present. Might be an intention for these next, uh, for the next week, let's say. So we close by remembering that we practice for ourselves, but also very much for our community. And then we extend the offering of the fruits of our practice, the fruits of our time together, out into the world, offering it ultimately to all beings for their benefit, for their awakening, for their healing. Thank you very much, and uh, have a great week. I we'll hope to see many of you uh, next week. And I think we'll be right at uh, right a little bit after the time of the solstice. So, thank you.